I want to remind you real quickly about uh, the ministry we're supporting this month, the Coffee Bunker. Uh, it's a ministry to vets, and they are in need of uh, non-perishable food items. If you want to bring them up here to the church, we'll make sure they get up to them. We'll be collecting there for a couple of weeks and, and take for them. Let me ask you a question. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as, as somebody who has lots of achievements, you have lots of uh, titles after your name, or somebody who's important? Or would you like to be remembered as a, as a humble servant of God? During the Revolutionary War, a man in civilian clothing came upon a group of soldiers. And the soldiers were trying to repair a, a defensive barrier. And the leader was, wasn't doing anything but yelling at them and, and give them directions, saying, do this, do this. And so uh, the man asked the guy on the horse, why aren't you helping? He said, sir, I am a corporal. So the man got off the horse and helped the exhausted soldiers to, to finish the defensive barrier. And when it was done, he turned to the corporal and said, Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. And with that, General George Washington got back on his horse and rode off. Washington's remembered as a great leader, yet he had a servant's heart. Where did he learn that? Well, he learned it from the Bible. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Now, originally, the apostles weren't interested in servanthood. Pastor, Pastor Mike had it right. It was Jesus and, and I want to say the 12 dwarves, but it wasn't. His, his apostles, the disciples, and they all were trying to get to the first of the line. They wanted to be first. They were more interested at first in, in prestige and power and greatness than being a servant. Like many today, they didn't want to hear that greatness requires humility. Stand in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning with the 46th verse. An argument started among them about who was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is greatest. Father, help us to hear with our hearts. And as you deal in our hearts, Father, may we respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. Several years ago, a, a pastor by the name of David Belasik wrote a book called The Penguin Principles. And he wrote it to help young and naive clergy to get to know their congregations. Now, the book was written tongue-in-cheek. That means that you don't take everything on face value. But here's what he wrote. He said, this is the first principle. He called it the 5% principle. He said, despite the pious things we say, at any given time, less than 5% of any group in the church is operating with purely Christian motives. The other 95% is asking, what's in it for me? Now, whether that's true or not, that seems to be the, the attitude of the disciples. What's in it for me? They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. Sometimes we struggle about who's going to be the greatest. And I thought about the great example Michael, Mike told about his boys competing. We, we want to know who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the most important. Uh, but a lot of people, including the disciples, a lot of people in Jesus' day, had the wrong idea about what kind of kingdom that the Messiah was going to have. They believed that the Messiah would come and set up a powerful kingdom right here on earth. And the disciples wanted to be first. They understood, excuse me, that's misunderstood about what the kingdom of God was to be about. 
For instance, in, in Mark chapter 10, it's early morning and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. They're just, they're just about to, to the city of Jericho. They're about to begin that climb from Jericho up to Jerusalem, that same road that the, the good Samaritan rescued the guy, that same place. That's where they're at. They know that once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, it must be about time for him to begin his messianic plans. And, and so they're thinking to themselves, what am I going to do? How am I going to be put myself in a place to be most important? Now, they, they don't realize that it's just five days before Jesus' crucifixion, four days before he's betrayed by one of them. It's just a day before the cleansing of the temple. And just a few hours before Jesus comes in and in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And James and John say, Lord, it's time. They may be thinking, you know, Jesus really likes Peter. And if we want to get our name in first, we got to talk to him now. Maybe they even thought, well, you know, we'd be better leaders because there's two of us. And, and Peter's, well, we like Peter. He's a good, here's our buddy. We've been working with him for years, but we really ought to be the ones. And so they decided to ask Jesus. Remember, not long before, their mother had gone to Jesus and said, uh, Hey, Jesus, can you put my guys, my sons, to your right and to your left? So now they're asking the same thing. They said, Jesus, we've got a question you ask us. So, so Jesus said, Okay, uh, what do you want? They said, We want to be able to sit at your right and to your left. Do you know what they were asking? Basically, they were asking, When you come to your kingdom, we want to be the generals that sit by your side to command your army because they didn't understand about the kingdom. First of all, that's a ridiculous request. What did they know about commanding an army? They were fishermen. I wouldn't know what to do to command an army. What they understood was how to fish. But they were blinded by ambition, and, and they misunderstood what the kingdom of God was going to be about. Rabbis and scholars of that day taught that when the Messiah came, he would set up a glorious kingdom. It would be like King David in charge. He would be the warrior king. They believed that he would throw off all the enemies. You see, they hated the Romans because the Romans were in charge. The Romans were ruling right there in their city in Jerusalem. And they thought when the Messiah comes, bye-bye Romans because we're going to be in charge. And, and all of the, the disciples were brought up with that. They had this same idea, even though they knew that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. Remember, Peter made that clear. Uh, we read in chapter 9, just a few verses earlier, while he was praying and his disciples were with him, he said, who do the crowd say that I am? A couple of verses later, Peter said, God's Messiah. He knew who he was. He just didn't understand that he was going to be a, a suffering Savior that would die on a cross for our sins and that he would rule in the hearts of people, not sit on a throne in Jerusalem. Sometimes like us, we hear what we want to hear. In Matthew 16, we read, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples, it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Luke also says this before our passage. Now listen, here's what Peter said. Lord, this can never happen to you. And so Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And Jesus had already told the apostles, and James and John are still here thinking who's going to be most important because they thought that Jesus was going to rule with a sword in his hand and cast off all the enemy. That's the kingdom they were seeking to be first in. But Jesus said, he who humbles himself will be the greatest. There's a book called 
All I ever really needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. It was written by a guy by the name of Robert Fulgham. And he wrote that beside his mirror, he has put a picture of a woman that's not his wife. This woman is a small, humped-over woman wearing sandals and a blue Eastern-type robe and, and hood uh, surrounded by important-looking people in tuxedos and evening gowns and the robes of royalty. It's a picture of Mother Teresa receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. And Fulgham wrote, Every morning as he stood there shaving, he looked at the picture of the woman. It reminded him that more than a president of any nation, more than any pope, more than any chief executive officer of a major corporation, that woman has authority because she is a servant. Jesus said we're to humble ourselves as a servant. And he gave the example in John chapter 13. Uh, we read that the disciples are around a table. It's Passover. In fact, it's the last Passover that Jesus is going to spend with his disciples. And during the supper, Jesus gets up from the table and gets a basin and, and wraps it towel around him and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now the custom of the day was when you went to a house, the servant would, would wash your feet. And there were two, a couple of reasons. First, they travel with sandals and you walk on the road. Uh, well, if you've ever mowed with sandals or flip-flops, you kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about. Your feet are pretty grungy. So for that reason, they washed them. But the other reason was they reclined at the table. And so their head was up close to the table. They reclined on their shoulder and their feet were pretty close to the table. And so it would make the food more appetizing if the feet were clean. But nobody wanted to get up and do it because it would be a, an admittance that somebody else was more important than them. And that's why Jesus did it. Jesus said, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Jesus said we're to serve one another. And how do we do that? We do it by love. We love like Jesus loved. A, a selfless love. A, a sacrificial love. An agape love. That's, that's how we're to love. And we'll serve if we love people that way. But to love as Jesus loves requires humility. Remember what Jesus said. Greater love is no man than this. Then he does what? He lays his life down for his friend. To serve as Jesus loved requires great humility. Uh, a woman from Europe had gone to Africa, and she had gone to, to one of the, the um, uh, leper's colonies just to see what was going on. And she went into the hospital, and she saw uh, a nurse there bending down in the dirt, tending to the pus-filled wounds of one of the patients there. It was hot. It stunk. There were flies everywhere. And the, this lady lifted her nose up in disgust and said, I wouldn't do this job if you paid me a million dollars. And the nurse said, I wouldn't either. But she did it out of love and service. That's her servanthood. And then H.B. London, who is the, uh, on the staff of Focus of the Family several years ago, uh, he's going to be with the Lord now, but he wrote, servanthood is not demanding my own way because servanthood requires humility. Well, Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest, you've got to be the least. The second thing he said was, to be great, you must become like a child. Uh, Matthew's gospel enlarges on this a little more than Luke did. Uh, when Luke says when, when Jesus understood what they were just arguing about, he's perceived in his spirit, he said to them, um, well, he, he took a child, put him by his side, and here's what it says in Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, so who is greatest in the kingdom? 
And he called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, unless you turn and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like a child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 3, it says, uh, unless you turn and become like a child. That word turn or turn and become means changed from a habit or way of thinking to another. It may mean salvation, but not necessarily. Uh, it doesn't imply that they weren't Christians. What it implies was that opinions and feelings about the kingdom of the Messiah must be changed. Because, see, they had the idea that the kingdom was temporal, just a short time. They, they thought Jesus would reign as other kings did. And so Jesus said, you're wrong in your ideas. You need to turn away from them because those ideas didn't fit the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was going to have. He said, you need to become as a little child. Well, what are children like? Well, they have little pride. They often have no ambition. They're usually humble and teachable unless somebody spoiled them and they're not teachable anymore. They're generally loving and trusting. And that's the way we're to be. Barnes' commentary says, Jesus said his disciples must lay aside their ambitious views and their pride and be willing to accept their proper station, a very lowly one. When I was in seminary, excuse me, when I was at Oklahoma Baptist University, I got to hear a preacher by the name of Joel Gregory. At the time, he was a, he was a professor of preaching at, Fort, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. Uh, some people called him said he had the voice of God because his voice was just, if I could pick a voice to preach with, it would be his. In 1990, he was called to become the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas that had a membership of over 30,000 members. They said it was the crowning achievement of his career. At that time, it was the largest church in America, one of the most prestigious churches in the world. Past pastors of that church had served as denominational leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. The church facility was covered five city blocks. It housed two schools, a college, and a radio station. And as pastor, Dr. Gregory was given all kinds of privileges. They bought him a house. They bought him uh, membership to several country clubs and gave him season tickets to the Dallas Cowboys. But something went wrong. Church leaders wanted more members. 30,000 members wasn't enough. And they thought that their church plant wasn't big enough. Five blocks wasn't big enough. But most of all, everyone expected Gregory to follow around behind his predecessor, Dr. W. Crystal, a great man. But even though he said he was going to retire, he didn't. And Dr. Gregory said there wasn't room for both of us, and the church began to divide. And so one day in September 1992, just a little over two years after becoming pastor of that great church, he stunned Southern Baptist by resigning from First Dallas. Now, 30 years later, he's at his alma mater, Baylor University. At uh, uh, He holds the George W. Trude Endowed Chair in Preaching and, and Evangelism. But back in those days, back in 1992, after he resigned from First Dallas to support his family, he became a door-to-door -door salesman selling pre-arranged funeral needs. A lot of people said he was a failure going from preaching to thousands week after week after week to having encounters one-on-one. -on -one. But Dr. Gregory says, that's not the case. He said, for the first time in my life, at the age of 46, I'm learning what it means to be a servant. Jesus said, to be great in the kingdom, you need to be a servant. And to become great, you need to become as a child. But then he gave a warning. He who exalts himself will be humbled. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spoke about the, the, the Pharisees, the uh, uh, 
They were the ones that loved their leadership positions. They loved to be heard. They loved to be seen. They, they loved the, the fuss that people made over them. And so that's why we get the verse, whoever exalts himself will be humbled in Matthew chapter 23. Scripture gives us a great picture of this. In the book of Esther, I love the book of Esther, even though the name of God is never mentioned. We see the sovereignty of God. We see the protection of God. We see so many things in the book of Esther. In Esther, you remember, she was a Jew that became the queen of the land. She never let it known but she was a Jew for, for I don't know what reason, but she didn't. And her, she was raised by her uncle Mordecai, who was also an important man in the town, who every day sat at the city gates. Well, there was a man in in the, the king's uh, service by the name of Haman. Haman's position was uh, prime minister of, of the king of Persia. And he loved the prestige he had. Every day as he came through the gate, everybody would bow down to him, except for Mordecai. And all that bothered him so bad. He determined that he was going to get the Jews and Mordecai. In fact, he had at his house a gallows built with, ha with Mordecai's name on it. On this particular, on, on one particular night, um, the king was reading. He couldn't sleep, and he was reading in, uh, about himself. He was also a pretty prideful man, so he was reading about his kingdom, about what all got, went on. And he read the account of where Mordecai had warned that there was a plot against the king, and his life, the king's life was saved. And so the king says, what's been done for this man? And they said, well, nothing's been done for him. And so the king says, okay, I'll take care of it. And the next day... He determined he was going to honor Mordecai. Well, Haman came to work that morning. He was so excited. He had everything all planned out. The people of God were, were and this is another part of the story, but the people of God were going to be destroyed on a certain day. And he had that gallows all ready for, for Mordecai. And he got to the city gate and everybody bowed down to him. But, but Mordecai, and that kind of upset him, but he went into the king. And the king said to him, what should I do to honor the man the king desires to honor? Now, Mordecai's, excuse me, Haman's thinking, that's me. The king's going to honor me. Who would he want to honor more than me, he said. And in Esther chapter 6, verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and put a crown on him. I always thought it meant on the man, but I think it meant on the horse. Put the garment on the horse and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him around on the horse through the city square and call out before him, that is, this is what is to be done for the man the king wants to honor. And so Mordecai's just waiting for the king to say, okay, guys, do that to Haman. But instead the king said, great! You run quickly and do that for Mordecai. Haman was humiliated as he led Mordecai down the streets. Be careful that you don't exalt yourself, for you will be humbled. And Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty, haughty spirit before a fall. Barnes Again, says in his commentary, it's also a part of God's regular plan to abase the proud, to bring down the lofty, to raise up those that, he bowed, that be bowed down and show his favor to those who are poor and needy. Jesus said, you want to be great in the kingdom, guys? You really want to be great? Then become servant. 
Have a servant's heart. Serve. Look to see where you can serve. And as he speaks to you and I, we need to look for opportunities to serve. How can we serve others? How can we do it in love? It's not that Jesus is standing over us and saying, you want to go to heaven? Well, this is what you got to do. No. He's saying, as you're my children, as you belong to me, serve others out of love. Lay down your life in love for others. Become as a child. Have a child attitude of trusting in him and following after him. And don't exalt yourself, for just as soon as you do, you will be humbled. Think about your legacy. How will you be remembered? I hope that one day people will look back and say, you know, that Keith, he was a humble servant of the Lord. I think that would be the greatest thing people could say. What will they say about you? Father, I pray that we truly will exalt you by having a servant heart. Father, deal in our hearts about what that looks like day by day. How can I be a servant? How can I be least? How can I love like you love and humble myself as Jesus humbled himself? I think about the verse in Colossians where Jesus says, let this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who humbled himself Father we pray in the precious name of Jesus Amen how has Jesus spoken to you today how's the spirit of God dealt with you respond to him say Lord whatever you want from me I'll do it as God's laid on your heart you do t today. If he's made a, laid upon your heart to make a decision publicly, you do it. Maybe it's a decision you, you want to make and, and you just want to share it with me. Write it down on the communication card and, and give it to me later. We need to do as the Lord leads us. Let's stand together. We're going to sing our invitation to him. Change my heart, oh God. Let God do in you as he desires.